Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. If you've followed the energy news at all, over the last couple of years, one thing that you've probably heard about is the decline of coal. Now, there is truth to this, and there is definitely falsehood to this. The, uh, the falsehood to this is the idea that this is a global phenomenon, and that somehow coal is being replaced by any other sort of energy, let alone the unreliables, solar and wind. Uh, coal is the fastest growing source of energy in the world, uh, period. But in the United States, it is true that there is a decline in coal, a, a drastic decline, I believe, and one that particularly manifests itself in the decline of the coal industry. If you look at once large companies like Peabody Energy, you see uh, their share price is just collapsing. Many of the leading coal companies from just a few years ago have gone out of business. And there are a number of contributing factors, but chief among those factors is the stable of anti-coal, in particular, more broadly anti-fossil fuel, executive orders by the President of the United States, who ran in 2008 in part on a campaign of making the coal industry bankrupt, and he is succeeding. Uh, so I thought it would be useful to explore a little bit one of the major executive orders that is uh, destroying the coal industry called the Clean Power Plan. You've probably heard about it, but you probably haven't heard a lot in depth about it. So today we're going to bring in an expert in this plan. It's Sherry Orton, who works for Doyle Trading Consultants. And she has re uh, recently released a report called The Clean Power Plan Surviving a Regulatory Game Changer. So as the title implies, it's about surviving it, but it also includes a lot of information about why it's so difficult to survive. So uh, I think that'll be a really important addition to some of the topics we've discussed in the past. We, we definitely haven't covered this one, and this, as you'll see, is, is a truly dire uh, set of regulations. All right, so we will be back with Sherry Orton on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Sherry Orton, who's senior analyst at Doyle Trading Consultants, and also she tells us uh, she also has the title of Greenhouse Gas Girl, which we may get to later in the interview. Sherry, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. All right. Now, you recently published a report called Clean Power Plan Surviving a Regulatory Game Changer, which has to do with President Obama's so-called Clean Power Plan. Uh, but to give some context for that, talk about what the coal industry in this country was like 10 years ago, because just things have changed so dramatically, uh, you know, in particular since we got a president who pledged when he was running that he would bankrupt that industry. But just bring us back about 10 years or so. What, what, was, the coal in, what was the coal industry like? What was its role in generating our power and what did its future look like? Uh, you know, that's, that's actually a really interesting time span because that's about the time that I got involved uh, with the coal industry. Uh, I started working for Steve Doyle um, close to a decade ago, you know, really kind of coming in uh, just barely under that. And uh, at that time, uh, you know, these emissions regulations, it, it, was, it was sort of a side thing to cover, um, which is how I got, you know, as, as the new girl at the, the company, that's how I got, how I got stuck with all of it <laughs> was, uh, uh, you know, but it was, it was a side consideration, you know, I mean, the coal industry was watching these things and trying to, to be mindful of them. But the idea that one of them might just 
come through and completely decimate the industry. You know, I mean, that that wasn't really on the radar. It was a, you know, okay, how much is this going to eat into the margins? Uh, it wasn't a, okay, this is going to make us completely uncompetitive relative to natural gas. You know, it, it was a completely different mindset about how, um, how the the coal markets were going to work you know this it, it was it was definitely not um really not anybody's primary focus at at the time and, and of course at, at the time that i came on i came on right after the uh, clean air interstate rule had uh, it had just gotten vacated uh when i started working for for steve doyle um and so we were in this, it was the beginning of this time period where you have these regulations that um, they put a regulation on the books, but it would just kind of come and go. And there was no certainty and nobody could, that was really the beginning of where you couldn't plan. You know, 10 years ago, you know, it, well, and, and even now, really, you know, when you look at the, the time frame and the quantity of the investment that it takes to put a new power plant in place, you know, these utility capacity plans, those are on the, you know, 10, 15, 20 year time scale. And so 10 years ago, 10, 7, you know, 8, 9 years ago, that was really where we entered this phase where all of a sudden, you know, you can't plan, um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road because you have no idea what's going to happen on the on the regulatory side of things. And of course, you know, we got blindsided by, by natural gas completely uh, as an industry. Uh, and so the level of uncertainty between then and now um, is an order of magnitude different. What about the uh, the size of the industry then compared to now? Uh, well, so then we were looking at, you know, from the um, U.S. utility side, I think we had probably in the neighborhood of 350 megawatts of installed coal capacity. And now we're down a little Giga bit under gigawatts or megawatts. Sorry, gigawatts, gigawatts. Um, the, a little over 350 gigawatts of installed coal capacity, and now we're down a little under 300. We're about 290 or so, and a lot of that capacity that's come off has been. Uh, you know, there was a big chunk that came off in 2012, and then another chunk that came off in. Um, in early 2015 and you know what a lot of people don't appreciate is that there's another big chunk that's we're probably going to lose next spring um, due to all of those plants that were on one-year extensions to comply with the mercury and air toxic standards so you know we're looking at you know this massive reduction in coal capacity which you know I mean it's normal for power plants to retire at some point you know they have finite lifespans but what's changed you know in the last 10 years is that now we're not we're not replacing them anymore um, so you know you used to you know you shut down your old inefficient units and replace it with a, you know a newer one and you know efficiency is usually gained by you know you put on one that's that's this newer and uh, obviously it's newer but um, larger and incorporates more emissions controls and, and whatnot um, and now the idea that you would you know it's it's kind of a non-starter uh, to build one either you know really with or without the clean power plant it's a non-starter to try to build a new coal-fired power plant in this country um, and so you know the retirements have accelerated but what's exacerbating that is that we're not replacing that generation well we're not replacing it with coal certainly um, a lot of it's being replaced with natural gas uh, uh, what about, and we'll definitely get to, to that dynamic and, and what the the different causes are behind it, but just in terms, so there's the, you know, the number of gigawatts in in service currently. There's also the perspective of the value of the companies or the market cap of the companies or in some cases the existence of the companies. And one, one case I noticed the other day was I was, I was looking somebody up who worked at Peabody Energy. Uh, and the bio said, I work for Peabody Energy, a $7 billion energy company. And I looked up Peabody's market cap, and it was around $125 million. And you just see all of these, these coal companies, you look at their stock prices, just plummet. So what's, what has the, what's happened to the overall market in the past 10 years or so in terms of the, the value and even existence of many of the coal companies? 
Well, you know, I have to confess that, you know, I mean, the utility side of things is really where my expertise is. You know, I I have, yeah, I have some, you know, ancillary uh, familiarity with the the, the coal industry just because of the the nature of the company that I work for. But, um, you know, I mean, I'm sort of somebody sitting kind of sort of semi on the sidelines, really watching, um, you know, I remember when earnings season was this marathon um, uh, from the, you know, covering the the coal side of things where, you know, coal companies, they, you know, like any other um, listed company, they report their earnings once a quarter. And and it was this big thing, you know, where we'd all, you know, stock up on lots of extra coffee. And, you know, you have these, this like two week long marathon of getting up at the crack of dawn and, you know, cranking out these, these earnings reports to get them out to our clients before the market opens. And, and now, you know, we're, we're, we used to just, you know, cover the big ones, but now we find that we have to cover the little ones also because there's not enough of the big ones left anymore that are, you know, still, um, you know, a going cons- that are still, you know, actively actively traded because a lot of them are in uh, restructuring, and so, you know, that's 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 sort of the effect that I've seen from my side is just um, definitely a significant consolidation in the industry, um, and, and you you don't have you you've got lots of little small players now and a handful of big ones that are just really kind of clinging to life. But, um, yeah, it's, it's not really pretty for any of them. There's, you know, Steve Doyle or Ted O'Brien, you know, would probably be the ones to say, you know, well, you know, these companies are, you know, doing significantly better than others. But from my perspective, it's been really kind of shocking to watch how rapidly the industry has condensed yeah, just one personal note on that myself. The first time I ever spoke uh, to any fossil fuel industry audience and really interacted with anyone from that industry was was only in 2012, and it was the American Coal Council meeting in in August of 2012. And, he, and I remember researching who's going to be there and all these companies, and and just to see multiple of those companies out of existence or a shell of what they were. And this is this is three. Uh, three and a half years, it's really shocking. But I guess that that then takes us back to the importance of coals, which I don't think is, is very well understood. And I think it's particularly not understood in in the context of having cheap natural gas. I don't think people understand why historically and for so long people have, why, why we've used coal and why there may be unique benefits of using coal even in an era of cheap natural gas, or maybe there aren't, but I, I suspect there are. So I'm curious what you think. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know I, I definitely agree with you there. Um, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that most most of the existing natural gas plants, power plants we have, they're either not designed to or they don't have the necessary pipeline capacity to operate as true baseload units. Um, and so, you know, I mean, your coal plants, they, they're, they're baseload generators. The idea is that, you know, they once, once they fire up, they, they run, they might sort of throttle back a little bit during off-peak hours. Um, you know, they, they cycle a little bit in the, um, the off-season, the shoulder seasons. You know, you have some of them, like down in Texas, it's not uncommon to seasonally idle plants, but you know, the the idea is that once you get it up and going, it's sort of this constant background um, generation support that, uh, you know, the idea is that that's providing your base level of generation. And then, you know, historically what we've done with natural gas is those natural gas units, you know, they fire up and they, they come online in order to pick up those demand peaks, like for a few hours. And so the idea that we're now expecting, you know, natural gas units to run 24 hours a day and operate in a baseload capacity. I mean, from an engineering standpoint, most of them weren't designed to do that. And so there's definitely a higher O&M cost, uh, operation and maintenance costs associated with that. Um, And, you know, they they don't have the lifespan uh, that those coal, you know, we've got coal plants that are 65 years old and still, you know, running like a clock. But, you know, natural gas units, um, really the ones that are more than, you know, and they they don't get me wrong, they've come a long way with natural gas technology and they're doing some really fantastic things with that um, very recently. 
to sort of address some of these things and how they're using natural gas more. But, you know, you go back 10, 15 years ago and the natural gas units that were built then were really designed to, you know, to be load following plants, to cycle on and off. Um, you know, they weren't designed to run nonstop the way that people seem to think that it's feasible for us to do. So what what is it about the the nature of the, the material, the nature of the technology that, makes that the case that makes it so that you're so that you don't have these natural gas plants that are providing base load for decades and decades and decades well that's you know i mean that's just not um it's not how the combustion so you know the, so so you have two different types of, of natural gas plants right you've got these um um sort of a, you have steam turbines which are basically the same technology as um what you have uh you know how a coal plant works and those are getting fewer and far between because they're really inefficient you know i mean when it, and, and their emissions rate really is not appreciably better than a, a coal plant i mean they uh sulfur emissions are lower but their nox emissions aren't you know they're a, kind of a marginal improvement there and then um you know from a co2 emission standpoint you know yeah once you get them up and going their emissions rate is lower but you know they're really inefficient during that that ramping time so you have those and then you've got, you know, combustion turbines that are intended to be peakers. And, you know, these are plants that are designed to have a, a, an operating, a utilization rate somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 2 to 8% per year. So, you know, I mean, your typical baseload unit runs at a 65% uh, utilization rate through the course of a year. Um, but these are designed to, they're, they're just designed to ramp up quickly produce power, um, you know, to get up to full power in as short a time span as possible. Uh, but that cycling up and down, you know, that that, that does weaken everything um, over the course of time. And uh, it's, it's just not how they were engineered to operate. Um, the combined cycle units that they're building now are, um, you know, they're designed to operate um, at a, you know, sort of a level run rate, um, more so than, than the ones that were built even, you know, two, three, five years ago. Um, but as, as far as, I mean, it's, it's just a, a whole plant spec kind of thing, you know, it, it's, it's not like, um, they're, they're just not interchangeable. Uh, and it's kind of hard to, it's kind of the whole suite of how that plant was designed to operate, you know, from its, um, you know, from the, the, the chemistry side of things to what kind of, uh, you know, cladding they have to prevent corrosion and, um, you know, the amount of stress that the different parts are designed to withstand, you know, it's, it's, yeah, they're, they're just, a power plant is not just a power plant, you know, there's a lot of other details that go into making it what it is, and they're not designed to operate the same way. What about the issue of price stability? That's, that's something that I don't hear come up that often, even though if you look at natural gas prices over the decades, it's not like there haven't been low natural gas prices before, uh, but they tend to be, in my understanding, much more volatile uh, than coal prices. Is that true? And what are the implications of that for planning oh. for the future? Gosh. Uh, yeah, actually, this is something that we were we were looking at um, just, I think, yesterday uh, when, um, you know, we were looking at natural gas dropping down um, to, it was a Henry Hub closed at $1.82 per million BTU. And that was actually the um, the lowest price since 1999. So that got us, you know, really digging through the archives and okay, you know, what was going, what was going on in 1999. And what I found really, really fascinating, because I didn't, you know, I, I had never really looked back that far. So I, you know, it was kind of news to me that it was that low then because I'm used to thinking of, oh, you know, you go back in time and that gas prices were higher. Well, you know, you go back even further and they were back down, you know, even really below where they are now. Uh, but so we had natural gas prices comparable to where they are right now in March of 1999. In December of 2000, so about, you know, a year and a half later, they were, it was close to $10 per million BTU. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, that's, that's a pretty huge swing. You know, when, when you talk about what the difference is there in terms of generating costs, you know, we're, um, you know, it's a, it's a night and day difference. And, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about lately, especially, you know, when trying to, 
because um, one of the things that I had to do for the the model that I built to for clean power plant compliance was to try to come up with some kind of reasonable guess for where natural gas prices were likely to be. And, uh, you know, there's lots of people in the industry. And, and strictly speaking, I mean, my area is, is natural gas. But I think the, the fastest way to make a complete fool out of yourself is to try to make some kind of long-term projection for where natural gas prices are going to go. Because, you know, I mean, I remember five, six years ago, even before I moved into the, the natural gas side of things, you know, I don't think that there might be some people out there that say, oh, yeah, well, I called this, you know, tanking and natural gas prices. But, you know, I don't think that certainly none of them were, you know, sure enough about it to put their money where their mouth is, because if they were, then, you know, they wouldn't <laughs> they'd have too many billions of dollars right now to, you know, bother really saying anything about it. So, you know, I mean, where natural gas prices are now, I think there were some people that saw them coming down. I don't think anybody saw them coming down where they are right now and I think what a lot of people don't appreciate is that the implication is well if you didn't if I didn't see it going this low you know even five years ago um, then it's really not very possible for us to have a good bead on where they're gonna be five years from now and it's not sustainable for them to be at the level that they're at they're gonna have to come up and so I, I don't think that anybody's got a really good read on how far up they're gonna come but I think there's it, there's absolutely no doubt that natural gas prices are going to have to shift upwards when you look out in the, you know, 5, 10, 20-year time frame. We're going to be looking at higher natural gas prices at some point. Uh, the question is how high, and I don't think that there's really a good answer for that. And uh, I think that history has shown that we're really bad as an industry. We're really, really bad at trying to call that. How does how does the price stability then compare to coal? Oh well, you know, I mean, there there's some movement in coal, but you know, the the thing is, is that you know, most most coal in the U.S. there there is some over the counter trading in coal, but um, that was actually uh, really just kind of getting going um, about the time that I got into it. You know, to where you were starting to get coal being traded as a commodity. You know, like we think about you know oil and natural gas being traded as a commodity. Coal really is very very new and the way that the industry has gone the last couple of years you know really the way that coal gets traded in the US is mostly long-term contracts uh, between suppliers and um, and and consumers and so you know I mean there's just not there's not the liquidity in a commodity sense to have the sort of volatility that um, you know that you're gonna have in other in other fuel sources uh, and, and definitely, there, there's, there has been definitely some, some price decline over the last couple of years. You know, I mean, you see um, Central Appalachian coal is definitely trading way below where I ever ever thought it would. You know, I mean, that's a certain degree of volatility there. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, dropping by, you know, $10, $20 per ton over the course of a couple of years. You know, we're not talking about, you know, doubling in price overnight like you sometimes see with natural gas. All right, one more question before we get to the clean power plan and, and your report. Uh, and this this isn't, I think, exactly your, your specialty, but I'm, I'm still interested in, in your view. You, if you look at the international landscape, you, know, you hear reports, not, not often enough, I think, but coal being the fastest growing source of energy in the world, slated to overtake oil in X number of years or decades. And, you know, the U.S. has this unbelievable capacity to produce coal. And so even if for regulatory reasons or even competitive reasons with natural gas or a combination of the two, we burned less coal for energy domestically, why aren't the companies making that up or more than making that up through international shipments of coal to meet global demand? Well, Australia is a big part of that. Um, so Australian producers, and I may be stepping on some toes here, but um, Australian producers really were very, very slow to throttle back on production when, because um, the, the global coal markets have been very soft. Uh, it's not just in the in the U.S., um, but a lot of your big consuming regions are over in Asia, and there's a um, there's a freight differential. Uh, for um, the coal from Australia versus coal from the United States. So they have a, a transportation advantage 
and uh, you know Australian producers were really really very very slow to throttle back production which contributed to an oversupply situation so you know right now global coal markets are are, are really pretty weak um, it, it's it's hard to say exactly what it's gonna take to see some relief from that with it being um, with it being an El Nino year uh, it's um, we were kind of uh, kind of looking that usually when you have a La Nina conditions, you get enhanced participate uh, precip not participation enhanced precipitation in Indonesia and sometimes parts of Australia, and so that can kind of hamper production and it improves the outlook for uh, U.S. domestic producers in the global market. But um, you know, I mean that that hasn't that hasn't happened this year. So. Uh, so we've we've really got global oversupply going on right now, and until you see a little bit more, um, you know, what what Steve Doyle would call producer discipline, um, you know, you're not really going to see a robust global market for U.S. coal because it's got to overcome that you know that differential in freight from producing areas that are closer. Um, as far as coal into Europe, I mean, you know, I mean Europe obviously takes some U.S. coal, and we have an advantage going there relative to you know Australian producers because we're, we're closer but you know they're, they're they're not really taking as much coal as they used to either so um, yeah as far as the the Asian markets and India they're just so much closer to Australia which is also a big producing region and that's that's really the big um, uh, sort of barrier to more penetration into the global markets from US producers US producers are have really been very quick to recognize that um, the market is not favorable, and that you know you sometimes you're better off leaving it in the ground for now because uh, and 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 waiting until there's actually a you know reasonable market price where you can recover your costs you know to to mine it and then ship it. To the extent that's the case, why are there these uh, coal projects, particularly in the West Coast, these export projects that are facing all of these opposition that that seem to be economic otherwise I don't know why the creators would go through all that uh, difficulty well so you know so part of the thing is you know you're not ta you're talking about um, really kind of two different export basins it, we haven't traditionally exported a lot of, of powder river basin coal um, usually most of what ends up getting exported is the higher BTU content eastern coals uh, which have better access to uh, both the shipping terminals in Virginia, um, so uh, Hampton Roads and Baltimore are both big export terminals, and then we also export a lot of coal through the the Gulf of Mexico there in uh, New Orleans and uh, Mobile. Those are big export terminals. Uh, Powder River Basin coal has actually has to travel kind of a long way before it gets to any of those, and so that's and then once it does. Uh, that also kind of spits it out of the U.S. on the wrong side from where the market is. So the market is all over in Asia. Um, and so, you know, really what we're needing there is a Western export terminal. But, you know, there's um, the the economics are good, but there's kind of a large environmental hurdle to get it through. You know, there's sort of this, um, I guess, big glass wall of environmental restrictions to get the coal out the western side of the country. Uh, and the reason why, you know, PRB coal is has got much, much lower mining costs, um, you know, substantially lower mining costs. PRB coal goes for, you know, about $9, $10 per ton versus, um, you know, $40 per ton for some of the eastern coals. But by the time you get it out the eastern side of the country, you start eating away. And then, of course, you know, you've got to, you know, ocean freight it around uh, some other some other continents to get it where it needs to go. So if you could get it out the West Coast, you know, then the economics get a lot better. It's a desirable product because it's very low sulfur. So, you know, really from a lot of environmental standpoints, you know, it, it's better for the planet really if some of these places in the in the uh, Asian Pacific region are burning PRB coal instead of very very low grade Indonesian coal which is you know what they tend to burn as an alternative um, it's you know PRB coal is a lot cleaner and it's very comparable comparably priced but the only way it's comparably priced is if you can get it out the west coast and we don't have um, you know you can get it out through Canada but you can't get it out through the western US Got it. All right, let's talk about 
clean you know power plan which I think as was indicated before is, is one of many different uh, I would say attacks on on the coal industry but nevertheless this is a, a major one which I think is why it's been the focus of, of some of your work and many other people's work so what what is the clean power plan and in, in particular what are its implications for the coal industry okay so um well as i think most people and and i'm and i'm afraid that i don't know you know kind of what the background knowledge level is of your average listener but well i'll, t- I'll uh, tell you so i mean the, you know a lot of them are regular listeners so they know a lot about uh i'd say overwhelmingly the technology and and human impacts of you know different forms of energy we tend to focus a little bit less on uh specific policies uh, i mean people are aware of the the general attacks on particularly fossil fuels uh but uh, a lot of people aren't following it specifically on a week-to-week basis and knowing exactly all the little little detailed regulations okay so what the clean power plan is um at its most basic brass tacks level is it's a it's an emissions rate standard uh and the it's it's issued under section 111 of the clean air act and it's specifically section 111 part d which pertains to existing sources and so there's section 111d rulemakings for other pollutants from other industries but this is the first time that section 111d has been well ignoring some court things and a rule that was issued that was later vacated um this is the first 111d rulemaking where they're applying a best system of emissions reduction a bscr uh to a pollutant from the um electric power sector and the emissions rate that they have assigned it it starts at a higher rate in 2020 and then ramps down but at the end of the day at the end of this you know sort of interim period when you get to the final part of the regulation uh the expectation is that coal plants will meet an emissions rate of 1305 pounds of co2 per megawatt hour and that um existing combined cycle natural gas units will meet an emissions rate of 771 pounds per megawatt hour. So to kind of put that in perspective, uh, a typical coal plant, a, a very, very efficient coal plant, uh, if you're not including some, you know, kind of hand-waving with some combined heat and power stuff where you're using some of your heat for something other than electricity production, uh, a, a, a typical coal plant, a brand new coal plant is emitting at about 1800 pounds per megawatt hour and a typical coal plant emits about 2200 uh, pounds per megawatt hour so this is a fairly significant decline um, and really what makes this rule so controversial is that unlike other pollutants you know so say you say you're talking about sulfur dioxide you know you have a certain amount of sulfur dioxide that's in your flue gas and the EPA sets a sets a standard that you would have to meet say you know some lower standard well you apply you apply a scrubber we have you know probably at least 20 different kinds of um, technologies that you can put on your power plant to reduce the so2 emissions but we don't we don't have that for co2 you know the there there are some carbon capture and sequestration technologies that are you know there's some demonstration projects going on there's some projects that are under construction but those are all very notably um, uh, with with one exception, I think one of them is a retrofit, uh, but they're all pretty much um, new build situations, and a lot of them are depending on uh, enhanced oil recovery. So they take the CO2 and they pump it into an oil field to uh, improve oil extraction, which of course you can only do if you're near an oil field. Um, they're depending on that on sale on those CO2 sales to make the the economics work out, right? So for your average coal-fired power plant that's sitting in you know anywhere USA there isn't anything that you can put on your on your power plant in order to reduce the emissions rate so the reason why this thing balloons from this very simple statement of you know the coal plants have to meet this 1305 pounds per megawatt hour to you know 1500 pages in the main part of the rule plus several thousand other pages of regulatory impact statements and and all of the rest of it is the rest of it's basically just 
you know, accounting. Um, so they come up with different ways for power plants to um, incorporate things that are not actions taken at at the power plant in order to sort of make the mathematics work out to an emissions rate of 1305 pounds per megawatt hour. So whether you're talking about uh, emissions allowance trading or um, they also, you know, sort of option A is this rate credit trading where you have rate credits that are being generated by your renewable resources that then, you know, can be bought by your coal-fired power plant and then averaged in or under an allowance trading system, you know, and an allowance trading is a lot about just, you know, reducing the amount of generation you have so that you're reducing those stack emissions and, and therefore the number of allowances that you need. But, you know, it's really basically all just different ways to do the accounting to get to this emissions rate that's not actually physically possible for the, the plant to meet. So what does this, you know, what does this mean for the next several years of, of, you know, for the coal industry, but then more broadly for uh, energy production and, and electricity production in the U.S.? Well, I mean, it's, it's definitely, you're looking at adding, you know, another, another cost, uh, obviously, at a time when most coal generators are, are stressed anyway uh, because of their, you know, trying to compete with natural gas units. When you look out to the, the time frame of where the program starts, 2022, um, you know, the first couple years of the program, you know, really kind of no matter how you go about it, unless a state, you know, makes, and I guess we, we can talk about the individual state choices later on, but, you know, for the, for the most part, uh, because of the amount of retirements that have happened since 2012, which is what the EPA used as their baseline year, everybody's in reasonably good shape, you know, assuming that there's some trading and sharing that goes on uh, for 2022, 2023. Uh, by the time you get to the second interim compliance period, which is 2025 to 2027, um, you're going to have to start making some other significant um, reductions. You know, there's all of a sudden, you know, you, you're going to have to start looking at some additional retirements. You're going to have to displace this uh, coal capacity with something else. And, you know, it was, you could really probably achieve a lot of the reduction if it were possible to build a brand spanking new coal fire power plant. You know, it's less problematic to look at retiring some of these. You know, the, there's a lot of coal plants that are in the, you know, we still have some operating that were built in the 1950s, uh, you know, the ones that were built in the 1960s. By the time you get to the end of this, end of this um, compliance period, you know, they're, they're getting pretty far up there. It's not really unreasonable to think that, you know, they, they might retire, but the problem is that, you know, okay, well, what do you, what do you replace them with, you know, because now we can't build a new coal-fired power plant to replace them. And more and more, you know, this is really what starts getting kind of alarming is that it's getting harder and harder to build a new combined cycle natural gas plant to replace the coal plant. You know, it used to be, you know, when I first started covering utilities, all they had to do to get a new natural gas plant permitted was propose to build a coal plant. You know, and then usually as soon as they said, okay, well, you don't like that, so we'll build a nat gas plant instead, and then all the environmentalists go home happy, and then boom, you, you know, you get air permits for your natural gas plant. But, you know, that's not how it's going anymore. Now the natural gas projects that get proposed are facing just as strident of um, opposition as the coal plants were four or five years ago. Uh, and so, you know, when you start looking at another large wave of retirements of your coal generating capacity in the middle of the next decade, it starts becoming very problematic when you start looking for, you know, something to replace that with. And so that's that's really what the whole crux of the, the problem is, is that, you know, it's it, the, the changes that are happening in the industry would accomplish a lot of these emissions reductions, but the problem is, okay, you know, eventually we do need to replace some of this generating capacity, and we're really limiting a lot of our options on, you know, what that's going to be. Now, the usual suggested quote-unquote replacement is some form of solar and or wind-based electricity, which are, are euphemistically called uh renewables in which I accurately call unreliables, I think. Uh, but what's, I mean, what, what do you foresee happening with that? That just seems like it's, it's going to do what it did in Germany, which is just 
add a lot of cost, add almost zero reliable power, and, and maybe add unreliability or uh, instability to the grids. Well, and I mean, you're really kind of hitting on the heart of the problem right there is that, you know, most renewable sources or, you know, whatever you, whatever you want to call them, they're, they're intermittent by their very nature. And so, you know, we are making fantastic advancements technology-wise with energy storage, but that's kind of a long way from the scale of commercial deployment that we're going to need if we were really going to rely that heavily on intermittent generation sources and you know what the way that I kind of think about you know the can you can you replace a coal plant with renewables thing is you know it's it's kind of like looking at uh, a smart car versus a pickup truck you know I mean yeah if, if you're talking about just you know getting getting in a vehicle and transporting yourself you know to to the mall for the afternoon you know yeah okay the smart car is a more you know efficient way to do that if you need to go to Home Depot and get a four by eight sheet of plywood uh, the smart car isn't going to do it. You know, they're they're different. They they fall into the same category. They're both things that provide transportation, but they're not interchangeable. They do different jobs. And a coal fire power plant is base load generation, and that's just we have precious few um, renewable sources that are capable of being base load. And and the and the few that are tend to get just as much pushback these days. You know, I mean, hydro generation. Uh, can run, you know, pretty much 24-7. It doesn't really, you know, ramp up and you're, you know, subjected to drought conditions, obviously. But, you know, you you at least do, especially if you add some some pump storage, then, you know, you've got something that's kind of like baseload generation that you can have, have there. But we've already dammed really every river that's going to get dammed. It's a political non-starter to put a dam on any river that doesn't already have it or in any places where there isn't already one. So we've really kind of tapped that one out already. And there's some places where they're talking about taking dams out um, because, you know, it's, it's disruptive to the, you know, the, uh, the local ecology with the fish trying to move and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, the, the options we have for, you know, palatable renewables that that can serve a base load capacity is is nearly non-existent really and certainly not something that can be deployed widely and so there there's really an issue right now with you know when you have a large deployment of a similar type of renewable generation uh, it's, it's like the problem that California is having the the infamous California duck curve where um, you have, you know, you, you look at the load curve over the, the, the net load curve over the course of the day and early in the morning, you know, your load is kind of ramping up as, you know, people wake up and start, you know, turning on their toasters and their microwaves and people go to work and they turn on lights. And then somewhere around mid-morning, that solar generation from everybody's rooftop starts coming on and the load drops down. Uh, and they're projecting that, um, you know, by the time we get into 2020, 2022, that time frame, uh, that the you know, that there's going to be a significant over-generation problem, but it only happens for a couple hours in the middle of the day. And then once you get on the other side of that, you know, you start getting to five or six o'clock at night, and you've got to have this fantastic ramp rate of your other generating sources. I think it's, um, I could be wrong about this, but I want to say it's like 300 megawatts per minute that they have to ramp their Whoa. fossil sources up. That's, Sorry, what was that? I just said, whoa, that's... Yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's this fantastic ramp rate that they have to achieve in order to pick the tail end of that peak demand back up because the renewables all peter off before the demand peak is over for the day. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, really, when, when you look at the... It's a, it's a major feat of technology to be able to... Um, introduce generating sources that are physically capable of meeting that kind of, you know, engineering spec of, of ramping back up again, um, you know, in order to pick the load up as it's falling off, uh, as the, the generation is falling off from all of these distributed solar sources. So, you know, I mean, th this is this is not a trivial problem. And I think everybody in the electric power sector is looking at this like, okay, um, you know, if this is really where we're going, um, we're, we're, we're going to have to have 
I mean, really, you, you, what you have to look at is, you know, wholesale replacement of a lot of your older generation, you know, on the nat guy side of things, because otherwise you're not going to be able to to fill those holes and meet those gaps. All right. So many, many reasons have come up as to why this is really, really bad for human beings in the United States. What are different groups doing on a national level or on a state level to fight back? Well, I mean, we've got a lot of uh, a lot of lawsuits going on, and I mean that would be the the area that that I kind of follow. You know, I mean, most of, most of what I do is, you know, my job very specifically is is as an analyst. You know, to approach it from a um, dispassionately and detached mindset, you know, okay, I have this system and I'm going to apply some kind of, you know, forcing mechanism or a constraint to the system and then quantify what happens to it. So that, that's, that's really sort of the perspective that I approach all of these things from. Um, but the, um, the lawsuits are certainly something that I follow also because I have to try to explain to people, you know, this is, this is what this legal action means, or this is the issue on which they're, um, arguing this on and, and try to explain, you know, the context behind that. Because a lot of times, you know, people don't really understand, um, you know, they, they kind of get the gist of, oh, well, they're challenging it in court. But um, a lot of times people don't understand that, you know, like EPA regulations, like, like any other executive action, um, they, they don't get thrown out because it's just not fair or you know, even even if it's just a bad idea, you know, I mean, the, the Supreme Court doesn't really rule based on that. You know, it really all comes down to an umpire looking at a regulation in the context of statutory text governing that agency that was passed by Congress. And in this case, you know, last really passed by Congress in 1990. Uh, and so, you know, it, from the legal perspective, it really just kind of comes down to, okay, can you find a specific place where what they're doing um, is definitively not allowed by that text. And, uh, you know, as far as beyond that, um, you know, lobbying, you know, I'm, um, I know that there's lots of lobbying going on. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, what I watch most closely is the legal side of things. Do you have an opinion as to how to, to the chances of success? Well, um, yeah, you know, I think that, um, so right now what's currently pending are some petitions to uh, stay the rule uh, while the judicial process is completed. Uh, so what that would mean is that the court would um, sort of put the rule on a shelf and it couldn't be implemented until the judicial process was done. Um, that's really the, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say that it couldn't happen, but, you know, I mean, even a lot of the lawyers that are um, on the industry side of this, that have a lot of experience with these particular types of cases, even though are um, not very optimistic that that's going to happen, um, it, it, largely because there's a very, very high legal threshold that you have to meet. Uh, you, you have to show uh, imminent harm, which, you know, I, th I think that they, that they can, but, um, that, that gets pretty tricky, uh, it, in a, in the, in the legal context, it gets very, very difficult to show that you're harmed by a rule that won't actually take effect for another, um, you know, six years now. Now, the, the fact that the reality on the ground is that, you know, they have to make decisions about, you know, how they're going to plan that far out, you know, it's definitely, it's impacting, it's impacting the markets, it's impacting the generators, it's impa impacting how everybody's making their long-term plans, but those are all sort of, um, they're difficult to really pin down and say, okay, you know, I personally have been, you know, have experienced financial harm or legal harm as a result of, of this rule. And so it's a, it's a very high threshold. And so most people don't think that that stay is going to happen. Now, even if it does happen though that's not really salvation for the industry because we've had it happen before where a, a regulation was stayed by the courts uh, it was then uh, it was then vacated so the DC Circuit Court then said nope this is no good and threw it out 
And then the Supreme Court came back in later and said, oh, well, we don't agree, and they put it back in place. And so even though the rule had been stayed and then vacated and everybody thought, okay, that one's done, here we are now, they have to comply with that. That's a cross-state air pollution rule. It was, you know, it was kind of a, a fiasco, really. Uh, and so even if the rule is stayed, it's not really going to fix the problem at this point because you can't count on that stay holding. After the stay, um, you're looking at another year and a half or so before you really get, um, but that, that might be a little on the long side, but you're probably looking at at least a year before you get a ruling from the D.C. Circuit Court. After the D.C. Circuit, and it'll be a three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court that, that'll make a ruling, and then usually the next step is they'll appeal whichever side loses. You know, this is, whether it's the EPA side or the industry side, whichever side loses will appeal for an en banc rehearing where, you know, they'll ask for the whole D.C. Circuit Court to review, review it. Usually that gets turned down. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen them. You know, I'm sure that they do occasionally take it, but it's, it's pretty uncommon for them to do so. And then they appeal it to the Supreme Court, and so then you have to wait for the Supreme Court to accept the case, and then it takes a while to get it on the docket. And so we're looking at two and a half, three years down the road before we really get any kind of legal certainty on what happens. So even if they chuck it out at that point, which, you know, I mean, there's lots of pretty glaring legal flaws with how this thing was put together. Uh, even if they chuck it out at that point, utilities have had, you know, will have had three years at that point of being in a position where you have to hedge your bets and assume that you may have to comply with this thing. You know, you can't count on the court throwing it out even if it's a funky rule, you know. Uh, and so it, it, it's very much like what happened with the mercury and air toxic standards is that by the time the Supreme Court actually got around to looking at it and saying, no, you know, they should have considered costs when they were determining whether it was appropriate and necessary to regulate, by the time the Supreme Court got around to doing that, we'd already retired some... Uh, gosh, I want to say 15, 18 gigawatts of coal-fired capacity, and that's not coming back. You know, nobody said, oh, well, you know, okay. And in, and in the end, even though the Supreme Court found that they were supposed to consider costs, what they did was they let the EPA just go back and reconsider costs, and, you know, the, the rule's still in effect. So there's really very limited relief that is possible to come from the courts, even if the courts side with industry and so that's that's really kind of the big the big problem right now you know the alternative is to get some kind of relief from congress um uh, but again you know you have to get that you have to get a veto proof majority at this point um uh the window to get uh, a congressional review of a regulation is really pretty short so that's gonna that's gonna close before we have a change in administration uh, and so, you know, once that happens, then to say we have a, a change in administration to one that is definitely anti-clean power plan next, what is it, next year? Sorry, I don't follow the presidential election cycles as closely as yeah, I really should. November uh, would be the vote, and January yeah, November would, would be, be the, the vote, and then January, and then, you know, uh, so, you know, presuming that you have a, a change to a more industry-friendly uh, administration, um, then basically, you know, what you're what you're looking at is having to get Congress uh, agree to sort of make an amendment to the Clean Air Act, and uh, you kind of got to get a lot of uh, a lot of people from a lot of different uh, demographics and viewpoints to sort of come to a, some kind of consensus on what they want to do there. You know, that that really they haven't been able to successfully amend the Clean Air Act since 1990. So, you know, I don't really see that we're going to have a less divisive Congress coming forward, no matter what happens with the executive branch. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, long and short, uh, you know, there's, I, I, if you really wanted me to, I'd be happy to, you know, detail kind of specifically what some of the legal flaws are. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure it's going to matter. Well, as the final question, then, what can, what if anything can listeners do on this issue? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I would say, uh, and, and maybe this is my own personal bias here, but, you know, more people need to read it. Um, 
more people need to understand exactly what it is we're talking about because you still get a lot of people that even people in the industry and people who are directly affected by it but you know this is a rule everybody's going to be affected by you need to understand it uh, and you need to understand exactly what is happening here um, because there's a lot of room for the demographic of people who feel like we need uh, to reduce CO2 emissions from our electric power sector to look at how this regulation is structured and see that it is not done in a way which is consistent with the Clean Air Act and which is maybe not very well thought out. Um, so, you know, I mean, really, usually what you get, like the first response you get when you bring up some, some legal flaws with this is, oh, well, you know, the Supreme Court decided that the EPA has the authority to regulate CO2 under the Clean Air Act, which is true. The Supreme Court did say that. They didn't specifically say that they could do it in the way that they're doing under Section 111D. And it's not even really a, you know, can they do it under 111D, but, you know, can they do it in the particular manner that they are? And I think that there's plenty of room for people who are really informed and really understand how this regulation is structured even if they're in favor of CO2 emissions to kind of get on board with the, okay, this is, this is crazy, uh, the, way that they're, the, the, the way that they're doing this. Um, and it's definitely, um, definitely taking a hit to democracy here. You know, I mean, w when I was reading through these, you know, several thousand pages, it was a multi-week process. But, you know, one of, my, one of my favorite drinking games actually became, you know, every time the EPA declares part of the statutory text to be ambiguous and invokes the Chevron doctrine, you get to take a shot. You know, and so it, there's, there's all these places where they decide things like the word system is ambiguous. And if you're not familiar with the Chevron doctrine, it, it basically is a judicial precedent that says that if the statutory text is ambiguous or if they leave a gap where they don't where Congress didn't say exactly what they intended, then the regulatory agency gets to fill in their own interpretation. Uh, and now it's supposed to be they get to fill in a reasonable expectation that is the best possible reading of the statute. But over the last several years, it's really gotten interpreted as they can fill in any kind of interpretation they want. So you have a lot of places in here where, you know, where they're kind of fabricating um, authorities out of whole, whole cloth that Congress never really, I don't think, intended to give them. Um, and this is definitely, I mean, I think that there's plenty, again, I think that the key is that there's plenty of room for people from both sides of the, you know, whether or not we should control CO2 emissions from power plants issue to look at this from a purely, you know, does this make sense as a regulation standpoint and be on the same side? So education, I think, is the short answer to that, the one-word <laughs> answer to the, like, 10-minute dissertation I just gave you. Great. Well, speaking of education, where can people learn more uh, about your work in general and on this issue in particular? <laughs> well, you know, as, as as it happens, we just put out a you know report on this. Now, the the report is really kind of geared towards our, our clients in the in the coal industry. If you do happen to be um, either in the coal industry or in the electric power industry, the report that that Doyle Trading Consultants put out is, uh, I think, a very good fit. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't usually toot my own horn just a whole lot, but I think that we did a better job of, I think, almost anybody else out there of really laying out in no-nonsense, really nonpartisan brass tacks, hey, this is this is how this works. This is the implication of, you know, this particular component. This is how this would be implemented. And these are some ways that that could end up, um, you know, sort of a ripple effect through the industry that's not readily apparent unless you're, you know, really thinking about it. Um, if you're outside the industry, oh gosh. Um, well, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm totally fine with, uh, uh, you know, fielding the occasional question. Um, there's lots of, um, there's lots of media outlets though that I've seen lately that are really kind of drilling down in more detail than they were, um, you know, right after the, the rule was released. Cause of course, you know, you have a lot of people that try to, you know, spit stuff out, as soon as a regulation is published, um, you know, so they can strike while the iron is hot. But of course, nobody's had a, had time to digest it then. So I think a lot of the 
um, some of the more in-depth articles that are coming out now, you know, talk about it in a little bit more detail. But, you know, the the best source is always the horse's mouth. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, it's it's lengthy, but it's all written in English. So, you know, I mean, if you speak English, I would recommend you just read the Clean Power Plan. I mean, this is gonna this is gonna affect everybody. Um, you know, if you're having trouble sleeping at night, it's it's, it's also good for that. But uh, the best education is reading exactly what the EPA said and make sure that you understand it because it's going to affect you. All right, a very admirable and ambitious assignment. So, <laughs> listeners, everyone who does it, email me and, and let me know. Uh, Sherry, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Sherry Orton for being on the program. I want to give a higher level perspective on this plan and the sense of thinking about what makes plans like this emerge and what makes plans like this not exist in the first place and what makes uh, very different, very good plans exist instead. I describe a phenomenon called the anti-hydrocarbon hydro, often when I speak to businessmen, particularly in, in the fossil fuel industry. And the idea is that they are faced on a daily basis with this overwhelming just deluge of regulations, legislation, executive orders, attacks lawsuits, everything you can imagine, and it's easy to try to respond to them individually, one by one, and to try to make arguments for why each one is bad on its own terms. Uh, But there are a couple of problems with this, as you might imagine, Uh, but one that I like to focus on is the fact that these are not really disparate attacks in a fundamental way. All of them are based on the ideal of getting off fossil fuels. And because that ideal is virtually unchallenged, although some people argue that fossil fuels are a temporarily necessary evil, the the ideal of getting off them and the the fundamental immorality of them isn't challenged, because of that, uh, all of these proposals are possible and really proposals like them are necessary and they will continue to be overwhelming until this basic premise is countered. Whereas if we're in a culture where the ideal is improving human life and it's recognized that if we look at both the positives and negatives, fossil fuels are overwhelmingly a positive tool for improving human life. If we have that framework and that ideal, then what you'll have is proposals for liberating the energy industry, including the various fossil fuel industries. So this goes to one of the underlying themes of this show, which is that what's really needed above all in all these issues is a humanist philosophy to evaluate the issues and to communicate about the issues. And that's why there's a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. It's about applying a humanist philosophy to the question of energy, and in particular to the question of our most used form of energy, fossil fuels. It's the reason why we have a course called How to Talk to Anyone About Energy, which is about, which is about reframing your discussions. But in what way? It's about reframing them in a humanistic way, about taking people who do care about human life but don't realize they've been taught a non-humanistic or anti-humanistic way of thinking about these issues and helping frame the issues so that they look really at everything in terms of human well-being. And we're going to have our energy platform, I promise it'll be out soon, and you'll see that's about a humanistic philosophy applied to political uh, policy, particularly energy policy. How can we have the, the energy policies that most promote human life? So that, I think that, that overall philosophy is what's missing. And, and the opposite of that philosophy, the anti-humanist philosophy, the, the green anti-impact which is really anti-human impact, which is anti-human philosophy. That's, that's the key to so much. So I hope that you get that in listening to all the shows, but I'm going to make it more explicit this year because I think it'll 
uh, help explain why it's so so valuable to get involved on the philosophical level, why this show is on the philosophical level, why I'm so adamant about spreading around resources that are on the philosophical level. So with that in mind, definitely make sure to refer people to moralcaseforfossilfuels.com so that they get the theory and then refer people to energychampion.net, which is the course How to Talk to Anyone About Energy, to help people be effective advocates. So if they do buy into the theory, this will help them be effective advocates. And then you'll see in the next couple of weeks, we'll have the, the practice of the theory, the political practice, the political program, which we call America's Energy Opportunity. And you'll see that will be the concrete way to implement the humanistic approach. So th those are how all of the big projects fit together. So I hope that wherever you are in terms of your uh, interaction with our materials at Center for Industrial Progress, you, you see that and, and you try to get involved in the different ways. So again, there's moralcaseforfossilfuels.com, there's energychampion.net, and soon we'll have americasenergyopportunity.com, uh, but it's not out yet, so going to that site will not accomplish anything yet. But if you listen to this a few weeks after Monday, January 4th, which is when I'm recording it, it should be out. All right. Let's use that to wrap up the show, except for our usual uh, comment. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Uh, make sure to follow us on social media. You can check us out on Facebook or on Twitter. There's the Alex Epstein account, the I Love Fossil Fuels, the I Love Nuclear, and the Center for Industrial Progress accounts. Also, industrialprogress.com if you want to sign up for the newsletter. That's the thing that will keep you most up to date on all of our activities and all of the resources that we make available and uh, tactics for sharing those resources and sharing your ideas effectively. And besides that, I think we are good for the week. So next week, we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.